welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to Want to Hear Something Interesting? Episode 11. Warning for our parents listening who are thinking about having their kids listen. You may want to preview today's episode before you let kids, especially younger children, listen. While we do attempt to keep our language clean and our subject matter relevant for all listeners, today's topic is, shall we say, seasonally sensitive for our younger listeners. And so, here we go. Today, we are going to talk about a topic that is very much on people's minds these days. Domestic espionage, invasion of privacy, one man's deciding morality for all, and society's pressure on the individual to conform to arbitrary norms at risk of unspecified consequences. What are you talking about, Scott? I am talking about the big guy, the head honcho, the one on top, the man in red, the fat man, as he's sometimes referred to. Sinterklaas? Yes, because he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness sake. I think I'm in trouble. Aren't we all? (laughs) All right, so as you have all guessed by this point, I'm sure we're talking about Santa Claus. And we could have went with your standard discussion of Santa Claus, as he's known in America, and everything like that. But we decided we're going to kind of peel back the veneer. We're going to take a look at what Santa Claus, where Santa Claus came from. Right. I I guess the big thing to put out there is the Santa Claus you and I know and grew up with is nothing but a marketing ploy. Pretty much, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to start with a little bit of uh, a few things, starting with where Santa Claus comes from, and then I'll get into my standard timeline that everybody has gotten used to me doing. But let's start with the legend of St. Nicholas. Of course, St. Nicholas being the Catholic saint that is kind of the forebearer to Santa Claus. So the legend of Santa Claus can be traced back hundreds of years to a monk named St. Nicholas. It is believed that Nicholas was born sometime around 280 AD in Patara near Myrna in modern-day Turkey. Much admired for his piety and kindness, St. Nicholas became the subject of many legends. It is said that he gave away all of his inherited wealth and traveled the countryside helping the poor and sick. One of the best known of the St. Nicholas stories is that he saved three poor sisters from being sold into slavery or prostitution by their father by providing them with a dowry so that they could be married. Over the course of many years, Nicholas's popularity spread and he became known as the protector of children and sailors. His feast day is celebrated on the anniversary of his death, December 6th. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because in our family, and my wife's back in her family, is um, Dutch. And December 6th is St. Nicholas Day. Okay. And what St. Nicholas Day is, um, you, you hang stockings by your fireplace? Well, you hang stockings on the wall? 
I do now. Actually, when I was growing up in New England, I had never heard of St. Nick's Day. I, okay. I didn't hear anything about it until I moved out here to Wisconsin and met my wife. Okay. Yeah, it's because you're in a heavily German, German-esque area now. So, St. Nicholas Day, uh, you hang your stockings out, and St. Nicholas comes around, and he puts little toys and gifts in there for the kids, and in some families, mine, for instance, uh, for the adults. It's really kind of an interesting, because when I was a kid, we didn't celebrate St. Nicholas Day. So, to me, it was kind of like splitting that holiday, because we always did the stockings, but you got them, you know, Christmas morning, just like everything else. Right. So, anyway, to continue on, this was traditionally considered a lucky day to make large purchases or to get married. By the Renaissance, St. Nicholas was the most popular saint in Europe. Even after the Protestant Reformation, when the veneration of saints began to be discouraged, St. Nicholas maintained a positive reputation, especially in Holland. And we'll get to that. So, you know, that's the look at the man. And actually, this St. Nicholas is only one of, I believe it's three, that have been kind of said maybe they, maybe, you know, St. Nicholas was based on him. I couldn't find much on the rest of them. But anyway, so we'll go with that one because that's the one that's most known to at least people in America. Correct. Sinterklaas comes to New York. Now, you might think I said that wrong, but I didn't. St. Nicholas made his first inroads into American popular culture towards the end of the 18th century. In December, in December 1773 and again in 1774, a New York newspaper reported that groups of Dutch families had gathered to honor the anniversary of his death. Pretty straightforward. So the name Santa Claus evolved from Nick's Dutch nickname, Sinterklaas, a shortened form of St. Nicholas. Or, I'm sorry, Sint Nicholas. Dutch for St. Nicholas. In 1804, John Pintard, a member of the New York Historical Society, distributed woodcuts of St. Nicholas at the Society's annual meeting. The background of the engraving contained now-familiar Santa images, including stockings filled with toys and fruit hung over a fireplace. In 1809, Washington Irving helped to popularize the Sinterklaas stories when he referred to St. Nicholas as the patron saint of New York in his book, The History of New York. As his prominence grew, Sinterklaas was described as everything from a rascal with a blue three-cornered hat, red waistcoat, and yellow stockings, to a man wearing a broad-brimmed hat and a huge pair of Flemish trunk hose. Now, I'm unfamiliar with what a pair of Flemish trunk hose are, but you sometimes have odd knowledge. Do you know what those are? If I remember correctly, they are connected to the German lederhosen. Okay, that would make sense. All right, so then we move into shopping mall Santas. Everybody's seen them. They're all over this time of year. They are in every shopping mall. Um, actually, we are recording on Black Friday, so they are in every shopping mall in America as we talk. So, gift-giving, mainly centered around children, has been an important part of the Christmas celebration since the holiday's rejuvenation in the 19th century. Stores began to advertise Christmas shopping in 1820, and by the 1840s, newspapers were creating separate sections for holiday advertisements, which often featured images of the newly popular Santa Claus. In 1841, thousands of children visited a Philadelphia shop to see a life-size Santa Claus model. Not even Santa Claus, just a model of them. It was only a matter of time before stores began to attract children and their parents with the lure of a peek at a live Santa Claus. In the early 1890s, the Salvation Army needed money to pay for the free Christmas meals they provided to needy families. They began dressing up unemployed men in Santa Claus suits and sending them into the streets of New York to solicit donations. 
Those familiar with the Salvation Army, Santas, have been ringing bells on the street corners of America cities ever since. Do that today. Take a bunch of homeless men, <laughs> dress them up as Santa Claus, and send them out to get money. How, how long do you think that would last? Well, we still have the Salvation Army bell ringers. We do. We just don't always have the volunteers dressed up as Santas. Possibly because the tradition has grown to the point where we even see uh, in the Red Kettle campaign, which is what they call it nowadays, some of them even have credit card swipers. Oh, yeah. So if you don't have cash, because a lot of people nowadays don't want to carry cash, right? You can just swipe your card. Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big mark for those. Honestly, every time I walk out of a store and there's a bell ringer there, change gets empty. Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of the year it goes into a change jar. This time of year it just kind of goes into the kettle that's there. So, you know, it, it's it's something small that people like you and I can do. Doesn't you don't have to break the bank doing it? Yep. Throw a dollar in there, a couple dollars in there, and it goes to a good cause. Exactly, and. Other organizations have piggybacked off of that. I mean, I carry small change and a a couple of singles with me at almost all times because my older daughter, who is currently seven, whenever we're leaving a store, Bell Ringer, Humane Society, VFW, Veterans Day, and any of those, she wants to donate, and I want to encourage her to have that charitable aspect uh-huh. to her personality so i support it no and that that's perfect so we're going to jump back in time now a little bit we're going to talk about a poem called "Twas the night before christmas are you sure that's what it's called well that's what it's called now originally it was called a visit from saint nicholas i see the connection uh-huh. So we're going to and actually as a bonus to this episode at the end scott and i will be reading a visit from St. Nicholas in its original form. So some of the words might be slightly different, but not enough that you're going to, it's going to be a big noticeable thing. But anyway, in 1822, Clement Clark Moore, an Episcopal minister wrote a long Christmas poem for his three daughters entitled an account of a visit from St. Nicholas. Moore's poem, which he was initially hesitant to publish due to the frivolous nature of its subject, is largely responsible for our modern image of Santa Claus as a right jolly old elf, with a portly figure and the supernatural ability to ascend a chimney with a mere nod of his head. Although some of Moore's imagery was probably borrowed from other sources, his poem helped popularize the now familiar image of Santa Claus, who flew from house to house on Christmas Eve, in a miniature sleigh led by eight flying reindeer, leaving presents for deserving children. An account of a visit from St. Nicholas created a new and immediately popular American icon. In 1881, political cartoonist Thomas Nast drew on Moore's poem to create the first likeness that matches our modern image of Santa Claus. His cartoon, which appeared in Harper's Weekly, depicted Santa as a rotund, cheerful man with a full white beard, holding a sack laden with toys for lucky children. It is Nast who gave Santa his bright red suit trimmed with white fur, North Pole Workshop, elves, and his wife, Mrs. Claus. What do you think? Are we the only ones who have a Santa Claus? I would be inclined to say no. And you would be correct. Okay. I'm sure other cultures have different interpretations of the this particular... I don't want to call him a, a creature, but this... He's really a personification of an ideal, 
Yes, exactly. And and you're right. There are several other ones, and I'm just going to touch on a few of them here. But let, let's get started. So, a Santa by any other name. 18th century American Santa Claus was not the only St. Nicholas-inspired gift giver to make an appearance at Christmas time. Similar figures were popular all over the world. Chris Kind, or Chris Kringle, was believed to deliver presents to well-behaved Swiss and German children. Meaning Christ child, Chris Kind is an angel-like figure often accompanied by St. Nicholas on his holiday missions. In Scandinavia, a jolly elf named Joltomitten, and now if I killed that, I, I don't speak Norwegian, but that's what it looks like to me, was thought to deliver gifts in a sleigh drawn by goats. English legend explains that Father Christmas visits each home on Christmas Eve to fill children's stockings with holiday treats. Pierre Noel is responsible for filling the shoes of French children. In Russia, it is believed that an elderly woman named Babushka purposely gave the wise men wrong directions to Bethlehem so they couldn't find Jesus. Later, she felt remorseful, but could not find the men to undo the damage. To this day, on January 5th, Babushka visits Russian children leaving gifts at their bedside in the hope that one of them is the baby Jesus and she will be forgiven. In Italy, a similar story exists about a woman called La Bafana, a kindly witch who rides a broomstick down the chimney of, of Italian homes to deliver toys into the stockings of lucky children. Okay, so all these, fair enough, were gamers. Okay. The Russian Babushka. <laughs> Are you thinking Baba Yaga? I am. Okay. Now, do you know what babushka means? Babushka means grandmother. Yes. And I find it interesting that their celebration day is January 5th. Okay, and why? Because, and the, the connection to the three wise men. Because in Hispanic culture, now you think Russian, Hispanic, where's the connection? What's odd, but in Hispanic culture, and especially in Puerto Rico, there's the Feast of the Three Kings, which is considered actually a more important day than Christmas Day itself. Because okay. the, the legend of that is January 5th is actually the day that the wise men get to Bethlehem. And thus crowning Jesus as Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. Where before that... I mean, not to be not to be crude about it, but he was just a baby that was born in Bethlehem. Correct. So with his own personal celestial spot. Well, yes, and <laughs> you know we can look at that from a lot of ways too. I mean, the story is great. Did it actually happen? Nobody really knows. Right. I mean, it was you know two thousand plus years ago, and they didn't keep the best records back then. Exactly. I mean, but, nobody blogged about it, so how can we know for sure? That's true. I mean, not not one post on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Nobody hashtagged it. I you mean, would think a big star in the sky, somebody would be like, hashtag, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. Or something. Mm -hmm. Hashtag end of days. <laughs> there, yeah, was, <laughs> honestly, if it happened, that's probably what a lot of people thought. But anyway, one more little tidbit I'm going to do here, and that's on the ninth reindeer. Wait a minute. I thought in an account of a visit from St. Nicholas, there were only eight reindeer. Yes, you're correct. And, and we'll get to that, but the ninth reindeer, come on. You know who the ninth reindeer is, don't you? Well, I know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen. Yep. Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. Mm -hmm. I don't seem to recall this Oof. most famous reindeer of all. Can you enlighten me? I can. So, Rudolph, the most famous reindeer of all, 
was born over a hundred years after his eight flying counterparts. The Red-Nosed Wonder was a creation of Robert L. May, a copyright at the Montgomery Ward department store. More advertising. Yes. <laughs> In 1939, May wrote a Christmas-themed story poem to help bring holiday traffic into his store. Using a similar rhyme pattern to Moore's Twas the Night Before Christmas, May told the story of Rudolph, a young reindeer who was teased by other deer because of his large, glowing red nose. Wait, did Rudolph drink? I don't know. The, I've read this poem. He seems awfully young. Yeah. So... Maybe he's the first X-Men. Oh, that could be. Yes. He could be a mutant. Yes. Well, let's read on and find out. But when Christmas Eve turned foggy and Santa worried that he wouldn't be able to deliver gifts that night, the former outcast saved Christmas by leading the sleigh by the light of his red nose. Rudolph's message that given the opportunity, a liability can be turned into an asset proved popular. Montgomery Ward sold almost two and a half million copies of the story in 1939. Mm-hmm. When it was reissued in 1946, the book sold over three and a half million copies. Several years later, one of May's friends, Johnny Marks, wrote a short song based on Rudolph's story. And this was in 1949. It was recorded by Gene Autry and sold over two million copies. Since then, the story has been translated into 25 languages and been made into a television movie narrated by Burl Ives, which has charmed audiences every year since 1964. Even as an adult... I find a lot of this interesting that Christmas wasn't a thing. I mean, really, in, in, the, in the history of everything, Christmas as a holiday, as a, as a secular holiday, right. has not been around for a long time. A couple hundred years at this point. Mm -hmm. Just about. So, I want to get now more into the history of St. Nicholas and the transition from the saint of Turkey to our modern-day Santa Claus. Nicholas's birth in A.D. 270. Nicholas was born around 270 in Patara, Lycia, Lycia, Asia Minor, to Christian parents. As he grew, he flourished physically, mentally, and spiritually. In A.D. 300, he became the Bishop of Myrna. Nicholas was Bishop of Myrna in Asia Minor, the city now known as Demir, Turkey, living his whole life centered on Jesus Christ. Nicholas worked for justice and cared for those in need. Bishop Nicholas, defender of the faith, forcefully argued for the doctrine of the Holy Trinity at the Council of Nicaea. The Council's statement forms part of the Nicene Creed, still said in churches today. And this was about AD 325. Right. So now, I know you're familiar with the Nicene Creed. I am, yes. I guess I didn't know. This is something I learned. I, I knew that it happened at a council, and it happened. It was written over several years. I mean, the Council of Nicaea lasted 12 years? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it was a long time. And and this was the major thing that came out of it, was the Nicene Creed. And to realize that Nicholas was there, you know, defending what he thought the faith was about and making sure that that was part of that, it's kind of a neat little concept. Mm -hmm. you mean, I mean, that gives us an idea of a single person as part of this. So Nicholas then died. Uh, Bishop Nicholas died on December 6th 343 A.D. and was buried in the cathedral in Myrna, now Demir, Turkey, and many pilgrims came to his tomb. Well, he was the most famous bishop, or most famous saint in Europe, so it, it has to start somewhere. Because if he had been, if he had died and been forgotten, you'd be like a lot of saints we know about today. I mean, we know the names and we know kind of what they did, but 
There are not a lot of saints that we know the whole backstory to. Correct. Wonder worker. Since the 5th century, the Eastern Eastern Church has revered St. Nicholas for the many miracles attributed to him and for his inspiring witness as a follower of Jesus Christ. So that was about 400. He doesn't become a saint, though, I think, until somewhere later on. But he is probably blessed at this point. So he was, at this point, he was, he was, the church said, okay, this guy is something special. Mm-hmm. He's in the process. What was it? Right. Blessed, beatified, and then the canonization. Yeah, that's is it. Is when he goes, yeah, was, is when Beatified is what I was thinking. So yep. he was probably in one of those first two steps at this point. So, and then in 897, following his baptism, Grand Prince Vladimir I brought Christianity and St. Nicholas to Kiev. All Kievian Rus were baptized, the area now occupied by Belarus, Ukraine, and certain parts of Russia. St. Nicholas is Russia's favorite saint as well. (laughs) (laughs) We move on. In 1087, Italian sailors took the bones of St. Nicholas to Bari, Italy. The translation of the relics is commemorated in Bari with a fantastic festival each year on May 9th. So somewhere between 400 AD and 1087... He was canonized. Right. I don't have an actual date on that, but we move along. So, in the 1100s, he became known as the gift giver. French nuns began giving candy and gifts to needy children on December 6th, St. Nicholas's feast day. Children still eagerly await his treats in French Alsace and Lorraine and in many other parts of Europe. And most parts of Wisconsin. Yes. That is that is actually something after I got married that... I really found a lot of people do. I mean, my family never did, but... Uh, circa 1150, scenes from the life of St. Nicholas decorate a black marble baptismal font, which was made in Belgium. St. Nicholas has been a favorite subject for church ornamentation, and the baptismal font that they're talking about now resides in Winchester Cathedral. So if you're ever over in Europe and you get a chance to see it, check it out. I mean... If I ever make it to Europe, I'm going to go check it out. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, 13th century boy bishop token. All over Europe, boys were selected to be the Nicholas Bishop from December 6th through the Feast of the Holy Innocents, or December 28th. Boy bishops and their retinues collected alms for the poor. Unfortunately, sometimes this turned into disruptive roving gangs, <laughs> which at the time in history, I guess I kind of see it. It's unfortunate. All right, so circa 1410, St. Nicholas rescues a ship at sea. Nicholas was a popular subject for illuminated manuscripts. This one is from the Belles Ours of Jean de France, Duke of Berry. He created this miracle that saved the ship, according to the people on board and everything like that. Miracles are one of the things that have to happen in order for you to become a saint. Correct. You have to have, and I don't remember what the number is, I think it's three or five miracles that the church has heard about and have said, yes, these are miracles, in order to even start the process of being canonized. Right. In 1560, a stunning basilica dedicated to St. Nicholas, the much-loved patron, father of the country, leader, and defender of Lorraine, is called St. Nicholas de Port, which is in Lorraine, France. 1661, St. Kirk, it's a silver reliquary, is in the beautiful St. Nicholas Church in St. Nicholas, Flanders, Belgium. Dutch people have to have easier words. (laughs) (laughs) 
But when you listen to them speak, it sounds so good. It does. It really does. And they they can say it so easily. It, it makes me feel kind of bad that I can't speak it as easily as they do. But they've done it their whole life. Yeah. So. It's like, and they have a great accent, too, when yes. they speak English. They have a great accent, too. All right, we jump now to 1809. Washington Irving's St. Nicholas. Diedrich Knickerbocker's History of New York describes St. Nicholas as an elfin Dutch burgher, not a saint, thus beginning the emergence of a distinctive American figure. So 1809 is kind of where that split begins, from saint, like religious saint, to St. Nicholas or Santa Claus, the, the secular Santa Claus. I find it interesting that Washington Irving is connected to this. Because most people, when they hear the name Washington Irving... Ooh, 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 ooh. Yes. Sleepy Hollow. Yes, the legend of Sleepy yes. Hollow and the Headless Horseman. Yeah. Okay, yes. Another holiday. Halloween, one of my favorite holidays. But a spectral rider with a flaming pumpkin head is not what I would associate with a jolly old elf. Yes, but now we have a spectral rider that just happens to be happy and okay. give you things instead of trying to take your head. Yes, I suppose. I mean, I, I guess I can see I, they're not the same thing. No, but the, there there is the the fanciful whimsy connection, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. So, 1823, a visit from St. Nicholas, or Twas the Night Before Christmas, first publication of the poem that became an American classic and formed lasting images of an American St. Nicholas. So, 1845, a new picture book by Jan Schinkman shaped modern Dutch customs by establishing St. Nicholas's arrival on a steamboat from Spain with a Moorish assistant. Crowds still enthusiastically greet their arrival each year in mid-November. This happens in the Netherlands. Okay, so arrival on a steamboat from Spain. So we've already had the connection with Spain. Right. Now, I've always wondered this. When they say Moorish, that's... Usually, Moorish is referring to in the... Derivation comes from uh, the times of the Crusades. So basically, it's someone of Arabic descent. Okay. I would usually have darker skin. Now, with the, the Spain connection, it's entirely possible that this person is from the Basque region okay. in northwestern Spain. Because when Suleiman the Great brought his armies up into Europe in retaliation for the First Crusade, they actually got into and controlled Spain for several centuries. Oh, okay. And so the Basque region is actually, it's a very unique, or I don't want to say very unique because that's not the, the way the word unique is used, but it's a truly unique region for multiple reasons. One of which is that it's one of the few areas in the world where Christians, Jews, and Muslim Arabs have lived side by side in harmony for centuries interesting that does make it unique yes all right so moving on from 1864 to 1886 harper's weekly features nas santa with flowing beards rotund shapes fursuits and clay pipes so that really is another thing that was one of those and i think harper's weekly still exists or at least it did a few years ago right they they were really a forefront of making Santa Claus this known entity to everyone. So in 1873, St. Nicholas Magazine. The first issue of St. Nicholas Scribner's Illustrated Magazine for Girls and Boys 
was published. Editor Mary Mapes Dodge named the magazine for the children's saint, the epitome of loving and giving. This new magazine offered gifts to children as he did, gifts of fun as well as learning. Of course. So, Scribner's, of course, is probably most famous as a publisher for a lot of their educational material, including some early textbooks. Okay, okay. In 1904, again, he's known as the European gift giver. St. Nicholas leaves tasty treats for little boys and girls. 1916, St. Nicholas Magazine, again, we're going to talk about this. This enormously popular magazine, named for children's patron, St. Nicholas, was published from 1873 until 1940. It featured high-quality children's authors and illustrators. So it sounds like they kind of upped their game after the first one. And it became something of a, of a standard up until, really, till just before the start of World War II. Right. Which makes sense because it would have been of tremendous use during the Great Depression. Uh, especially with so many children not being able to go to school because schools were closed and people were moving around constantly trying to find work. Right. You have this magazine that the children would look forward to and it it's one of those it's an educational toy it's learning disguised as fun so the kids don't fight to not learn something okay yeah i see i see where you're going with that so we move on to 1920s dutch moral teacher saint nicholas visits homes and schools to reward good children who have learned their lessons well mm-hmm so it's kind of a co-opting of the whole Christmas thing to make sure that Johnny and and Jane, Jane do their homework. Right. I, I guess if it works, it works. Mm-hmm. So 1931. Now this is something that is really important in the in the world of Santa. Each year from 1931 to 1964, Haddon Sundblom created a new Santa for Coca-Cola's Thirst Knows No Season campaign. His life-size Santas in white fur-trimmed red suits are now American Santa Clauses. This, 1931, was the first one. Correct. Again, we get back into marketing. Santa Claus was marketing for Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. It was used, Santa Claus was used by all the big uh, department stores, your Macy's, your Montgomery Wards, you, all these things. You know, if Walmart had been around at that time, he would have been there too. Absolutely. And it's because... He's public domain. Right. No, you can't. And part of it is because he's based on St. Nicholas, whom authorities tend to agree was an actual real living human at one point. Mm -hmm. So it's not somebody's intellectual property that they could copyright. Correct. Now, certain things, like I'm sure all the Coca-Cola images are copyrighted, but you can't copyright a color. Right, yeah. And so all the, the Santas can be in the red suits with the white trim. Right, right. So in 1945, still the gift giver in Europe, St. Nicholas's donkey helps bring treats to excited and happy children. Now when I read this one at first, I'm like, okay. But then I'm like, 45, that's the end of the Second World War. Yep. This place was a mess after the war. I mean, mm-hmm. every country had been touched by the war in one way or another. And to the fact that St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus, or whatever you want to call him, still made his rounds, that's really important to the mystique and the history of that character. 
Right. And also notice that even though we're a century or so after the poem with the reindeer, uh-huh. reindeer are indigenous to the north. Right. Now, I'm sure I will hear this song over and over and over again in the next month and a half. You know what song I'm talking about. Rudolph? No. No? Which one? Dominic. The Italian Christmas donkey. Yes. And also notice that in that little bit you just read us, it's not Santa Claus making his rounds, but St. Nicholas. Correct. And again, we're seeing a lot of the commercialization aspects are centered, unfortunately, here in the U.S. Most of the rest of Europe still has that miraculous tone and a little bit of religious overtone to it. I mean, in Italy, it would make sense. I mean, you right. Rome. Right, there. yeah, yeah. It's the center of, the, of Catholicism. Yeah. All right, so we work our way into the 1950s in Europe, and St. Nicholas now rewards all children, whether naughty or nice. See, that's the downfall of Christmas right there, my friend. Yes. But even Coca-Cola once knew the true St. Nicholas, or so they claim. Mm-hmm. We jump again a few decades to 1994, St. Nicholas Defense. I thought this was really interesting. In 1994, the action committees in the Netherlands and Belgium tell Santa Claus to stay away until after St. Nicholas's Day on December 6th. It's the day after Thanksgiving, and I don't know if they if they celebrate those in the Netherlands and Belgium, but Santa is nowhere there. He can't show up till December 7th, basically. Right. So they kind of they kind of separated the whole. I mean, they have now done. They've drawn the line in the sand. This is Saint Nicholas's time, and this is Santa Claus's time. Correct. And I actually like that because I think it preserves the integrity of the original concept of Saint Nicholas. In that it it's not the crass commercialism that Santa unfortunately has become. And yes, you're still giving gifts. You're giving little candies, uh, right. maybe socks or something, uh, small tokens. But it's about the the concept of generosity and caring for others, as opposed to who got the shiniest toy. Right, right. You get a pair of socks in a sock? Yes. That seems pretty meta, my friend. Mm-hmm. All right, and so, so remind me to tell you my Christmas stocking story a little well, we later do in that, this episode. We can do that in just a second, actually. I've got one more point on the timeline. Canterbury, England, 2001. Good Bishop Nicholas rides through the town leading happy crowds to the heart of Christmas, the manger where Jesus was born. So it's almost like, in a way, it's come full circle. You know, um, as I get older, yes, there is the crass commercialism that goes with santa claus and christmas and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but even from when i was a kid religion seems to have come back into christmas a little more well all of those bumper stickers that i've seen around the last couple of years saying keep christ in christmas probably helps i i would assume so yeah yeah all right so that's where my timeline is done now like we do on most episodes i do the historical stuff what have you brought us well let's start with that 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 stocking story okay When I was younger, I think probably 10 or 11, my mom and I went to a fundraiser and they had door, it was a a dinner and they had door prizes and such. And 
one of the prizes was this hand-knit green and white Christmas stocking. You okay. know, the kind to specifically design. It had the loop on it to hang up over the, the uh, foot on the mantle yep. or whatever. And as it happened, we had to leave before they were going to announce the winners. Okay. But some friends of ours were there, and they, they said, well, give us your, your tickets, and if you win, um, just tell us a, a couple of things you'd like. And I said, according to my mom, I told them, when I win, I want that stocking. And the people there were like, are you sure? I mean, there's the remote control race car, and there, there were other like shiny toys mm-hmm. and stuff. And I said, no, I want the stocking. And so we left, and uh, the next day, um, her friends called my mom and said, well, he was right. He won, and so we got him the stocking. And so they, they met and picked up the stocking. My mom brought it home. I'm like, cool. Then Christmas Eve comes around, and my mom is putting stuff in the stocking, and she realized why I wanted it, because she had stuff that was about the same amount as she had in previous years put in a regular felt stocking and as she was putting the things in the stocking being knit stretched and and stretched stretched and stretched to the point where what she thought would fill it only took up about a third of it and she had to go get more stuff (laughs) so that's when she started getting me large bulky things to put in fortunately for her i loved triscuits Okay. The, and this was before I knew I had celiac disease, and now a, a Triscuit would probably kill me. But so she would get me well, boxes not you of would Triscuits. Kill us. Right. So she'd get me like boxes of Triscuits, and we both loved Hershey's Special Dark Chocolate. So she'd okay. get the the big bar, and that way she could like put it most of the way in, but it, it would still take up a lot of space. Right. Right. And then uh, also every Christmas in my stocking, I got a package of new socks and a package of new underwear. Okay. Again, nice, big, bulky things. So my quick stocking story is, you know, as a kid, we always had just the standard, you know, felt, whatever, red stockings or whatever. But a few years ago, and now people know I'm a gamer. A few years ago, I was at a convention, and somebody is selling a Christmas stocking. And I instantly fell in love with it because up on top, it has a big Cthulhu head with him wearing a Santa hat, mm-hmm. and he's got the tentacles hanging out. And every year I hang it up now, and my wife and my kids just look at me and go, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what is wrong with you? I'm like, it is perfect. It is. I remember when you got it, you texted me a picture of it. Oh, quite possibly. I was yep. pretty I was pretty stoked about that one. Mm-hmm. And I think I picked it up for like 20 bucks. I know. It was like win-win. Exactly. All right, so what do you got for us today? So... The approach I wanted to take was Santa in literature. Okay. Now, we we know about the poem, and we're going to read, read that poem. You alluded to the television specials, especially like with Rudolph. There's any number. I, I think the producers were Rankin and Bass. Yes. They did all the old, um, like, A Year Without a Santa Claus, and the ones with Heatmeister and Coldmeister. And, and Frosty. Frosty and... And all of those. Um, and I actually have a few of those on DVD. I got them to watch with my older daughter. And when my younger daughter gets old enough, yeah. I'm going to watch them with her as well. But you and I are, are both approaching this from the parent perspective. But 
your girls are older. They're now yep. teenagers. Uh, one is, in a couple of years, not going to be a teenager anymore. Correct, yeah. Um, whereas I have a seven-year-old and a nine-month-old. In a, in a month, my oldest will be 18. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. Yes. And I'm how much older than you? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I brought, if you could see it, I, I have a stack of books, and this isn't even all the, the books I have with, like, Christmas stuff and But everything. because they are Christmas books, they are awfully pretty. They are. In fact, I have one that has little twinkle lights in it. Nice. <laughs> so... One of the books I didn't bring is actually a copy of that original Rudolph poem. And I, I'm familiar with the Gene Autry song, and I'm familiar with the general story, and I had seen the TV special. The first time I read the original Rudolph story to my daughter, I had to quickly edit parts of it because Rudolph is really badly bullied. And there are um, some parts in it where Santa is actually despairing of finishing his round because the night is so foggy. And it's one of those serendipitous circumstances that he's delivering. And one thing I thought was interesting, he's not just delivering to children, he's delivering to reindeer as well. And so he goes to Rudolph's house and he's delivering something to Rudolph's brother i believe okay and then he comes into rudolph's room and he, he opens the door and he sees this rosy glow that softly illuminates the room and lets him move quickly through and everything and that's when he discovers that it's rudolph's nose and that's when he decides to wake rudolph up and take him along with him and so the poem goes on to describe how when the the house was too dark Rudolph would kind of hover around outside the windows so that his nose would shine into the room so that Santa could make his rounds without waking people up by tripping over everything. Right, right. And it actually gets them back on schedule and he's able to complete his rounds in time. And Rudolph had written a note for his parents saying, out helping Santa be back in the morning, essentially. And when he touches down... All of the, it's like in the song, all the other reindeer who used to laugh and call, call him names. names now want to be his best friend. And he, they're saying, speech, speech, t- tell us. And he is so tired that all he can muster is that now iconic line, Merry Christmas to all and to all good night. And then he goes home and goes to sleep. Well, you know, it's like that first time you sit down and you actually read a Grimm's fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And compared to the fairy tales, you know, that Disney has given us. Oh, yeah. Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, all of those. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the way things were written then, not necessarily for kids. No. But, they, you know. They were, well, Grimm's fairy tales especially were warnings to parents. Right. About what not to let your children do because it was dangerous. Right. Don't let them go wandering in the woods. There are crazy people out there. Yeah. <laughs> things like that. Long before you could just get online and see where the crazy people live. Mm-hmm. So one of the books I brought is called Bear Stays Up for Christmas. Okay. Now this is, it's a children's book. It's written by Karma Wilson and illustrated by Jane Chapman. Uh, it's published by Little Simon, which is a, a children's book imprint of Simon & Schuster. Okay. And it's it's not really 
part of a series, but it, there is the what I call the bear books okay. um, that Wilson and Chapman do. Uh, the first one is called Bear Snores On, and it's nice, simple poetry. It's a heavy-duty board book, and, I mean, you can give it to kids. They can play with it. They can chew on it if they want, and the other titles are like Bear Snores On, where bears hibernating through the winter, and other forest animals gather in his cave to wait out a blizzard because it, it's nice and warm and safe. And they end up throwing a party, and Bear wakes up uh -oh. in the middle of the party, uh -oh. and he's upset because all the food's eaten, Every like the party's almost over, and he slept through the whole thing. But then the friends make some more popcorn, they make some more tea, and they they continue the party and let Bear be included. So it, all of the books are about inclusion and friendship and overcoming adversity things that kids really need to know and and it's couched in really good simple easy to understand discussions and i just want to read a little part here so everybody is in bear's cave waiting to celebrate christmas because bear has always slept through christmas yeah and so uh, there's a line that says but soon all the voices fade to just one. A bright star glows while his good friends doze. But the bear stays up. Bear giggles and grins. He works and he raps. He bustles and bakes while everyone naps. He piles up presents under the tree. But who's at the doorway? Bear doesn't see. And the, the illustration is Bear has his back to the cave opening. And Santa, in his trademark, red suit with white trim and a big white beard is walking in and hanging up stockings for all of the forest animals okay so it says he toils all night until the sun rises making his friends their christmas surprises so it, it's great it's about i mean yes it's a little commercial it, it's giving gifts but Bear isn't going to the local store on Black Friday to buy these. He's making everything himself right. yeah. for his friends. Which was a very common practice for a long time. Oh, yeah. You know, you didn't... You, I mean, yeah, they they talked about department stores having flyers and stuff, you know, as early as the 1840s. But I, I doubt it was anything like what we see today. No. Although those flyers came in very handy during the America's Westward Expansion. Because a lot of the families, because they were traveling and were basically subsistence farmers, come Christmas time, instead of gifts, they would actually give each other the pictures cut out of the catalogs of what they would want. So it's kind of almost like a promissory note saying, once we reach our destination and we get settled, we'll be able to have these things. That's kind of a cool idea. Mm-hmm. All right, so what, what do you got next? Okay, um, the next one I have is this nice, thick book with a very soft, puffy cover. It's called The Magic of Christmas, and it's actually an anthology. Okay. And it has um, a whole bunch of little kids' stories. Um, there's I've Seen Santa uh, by David Bedford, um, Careful Santa by Julie Sykes, uh, Laura's Christmas Star by Klaus Baumgart, uh, Bless You Santa again by Julie Sykes, and The Gift of Christmas by Christine Leeson. 
So, and it's beautifully illustrated, but it's definitely um, geared towards um, parents to read to children. Um, it's definitely a, a bedtime or a, a fireside book to do with that. So, but another one I have is called Room for a Little One, A Christmas Tale by Martin Waddle and illustrated by Jason Cockroft. And the, the inside jacket has a great line. It says, on Christmas Eve, all are welcome at the stable. On Christmas Eve, all are welcome because there's always room for a little one. And it, it's really getting back to the origin story. And it it's more of the religious overtones without being super heavy-handed about it, which I, I really liked. Because so it's got it's, the overtones, but it's not... It's not like, this is Jesus, this is this, this is... Right. So, and then, of course, I have the nicely Mary Engelbright illustrated The Night Before Christmas, which we are going to read in a little bit. So, but the other thing I wanted to bring up, and it, it goes kind of towards the Santa by any other name okay. thing that we talked about earlier, right. and... As we've discussed over and over again, British author, recently departed, unfortunately, Terry Pratchett, is my favorite author. And his stories in his uh, Discworld setting usually took something that was happening in the real world, and then he set it in that uh, fantasy world, and he put a little twist on it to comment on society and things like that. And, of course, he does something with Santa called Hogfather. Okay. But it's, again, the the representation is a, a larger, jolly man with a big white beard wearing red robes trimmed in white. And he travels through the sky on the, the special evening in a sled pulled by four boars. Okay, not reindeer, wild right. boars. Right, And um, there's a a great scene where there's a disturbance at one of the malls and they, they actually call it the mall, but it's M A U L okay. like the, the weapon or when right. you're mauling somebody. And the scene that they describe in there is basically parents are clawing at each other to get to the latest toys for their kids. And the, the kids are standing around looking bored and everything, waiting in line to sit on the hog father's lap and everything. And there are these two city police officers who are called into a disturbance there and someone has decided to take out the hog father. Okay. And so in order to keep things going, death steps in and is delivering the presence. And so he's decided to make a public appearance at this giant department store, which is known for its, fake Santa basically and so the he shows up there and the fake Santa that's normally there comes storming out and says I've had it I, I can deal with the kids peeing on my lap and everything but I will not be replaced by an amateur he can't even do the voice right and so when, when the officers get there the manager of the department store says well it, it's an imposter and the, the one of the police officers says okay so it's not the usual fake Santa it's a fake fake Santa 
And the, the manager's like, I, I need you to go in there and arrest him. And the officer says, okay, let's stop and think about this for a second. You want us to go in, in front of all those kids, the night before Christmas, and arrest Santa and haul him out in handcuffs. Okay, maybe that's not the best way to approach this. <laughs> but the other officer is not from that, that town. He's actually from a country where it's very religiously conservative, and they don't celebrate the, the Christmas holiday. They have what they call the Feast of St. Ossery, where it's more of an austere religious holiday where the families come together and celebrate being together, and then they go to church. Okay. So I, I like that he throws in that little juxtaposition of the religious origin with the modern commercialism. Yeah, that's that's kind of a neat idea. I'm gonna ask a question here. Okay. And you know, and I re- I wrote these two questions down, and, I, and I'm thinking about it, and it's kind of a hard question to answer. So if you can't come up with an answer right away, I 42. get it. Well, that's the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Exactly. Everybody knows that. What is your best Christmas ever? Adult, childhood? What What would you consider your best Christmas? You're right. That is a toughie. It is. Um. I don't know. When I was a, a child, pretty much all of my Christmases revolved around my grandmother's house. Okay. And so, I mean, we always had the big tree and uh, the, the big family dinner. Um, I always got to open one present Christmas Eve, but okay. it was always whatever my new clothing or whatnot for church on Christmas Day was. So it, it, after a while, I, I caught on. And I'm like, okay, this isn't really a present. This is what I'm wearing tomorrow. Right, right. So um, I I would have to say probably my best Christmas so far, because I'm sure I'm going to have another one very shortly, um, would be when my older daughter was a about three or four because she was old enough to be able to understand that there there's something special about this day and she could articulate stuff like that and she got so excited about things yeah yeah that's so and it and in a way it just kind of reminded me of this old saying that um, there's four stages to a man's life he believes in santa claus he doesn't believe in santa claus he is santa claus and then finally, he looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, worst Christmas ever. Oh, that would probably be, I think it was two Christmases after my grandmother died. Because without her to hold down all of the infighting in the family, the, the first Christmas, we all got together at one of my aunt's. But then after that, when they started going through the will and disposition of assets and I wanted this family heirloom while so-and-so got the box of grandma's recipes and she won't give us copies of them, petty things like that. It, um, really, that, that was the point where Christmas really started to be a drag for me until I met my wife. So on the upside, for a few years, I was working for a hotel out in Boston. Mm-hmm. And normally, 
um, we did three eight-hour shifts in hotel security. And for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we split it into two 12s. And I would always volunteer to take, usually I, I took Christmas Eve day and Christmas Day day shift so that um, those guys in the department who were married and had kids could be home with that. And the hotel always put on a really nice dinner for the staff that was there on Christmas Day. Okay. So, and the other guys in the department were always really appreciative of my being willing to pick up the shift so that they didn't have to, so that they had time to spend with their kids. Yeah, that, that's, so. that's, that's pretty cool. All right, last question I have. When did, how old were you? When did you figure out that Santa Claus, per se, isn't real? Um, well, I think I realized that it was my mom putting the presents under the tree. I think probably around six or seven. Okay. So, and that was, I, I think it was actually simply because she couldn't think of what to get me. So she took me shopping for my present. Oh. <laughs> and my mama had always had the, the belief that, okay, presents from Santa don't get wrapped. So Christmas morning when, when I woke up, I, I'd look out and I'd see stuff under the tree. And so if it was from her, from somebody else, it was wrapped and it had the label on it. But if it was just open, then that was what Santa brought. Okay. So, so, but it, it always used to irritate her because I'd never go looking for stuff. And so she could buy stuff whenever and just put it in the closet in her bedroom. And I never went snooping looking for stuff. And she said, you're not a normal kid. Kids want to know what they're getting for Christmas. I said, why ruin the surprise? Yeah. And like Christmas morning, sometimes I'd sleep until 10 or so. She'd come and wake me up and say, will you get out of bed and come open your presents? <laughs> You were not a normal child. No. But given how long you've known me, does that surprise you at all? No, not really. I found out about Santa, unfortunately. Mine, to me, was devastating. My older brother, who's four years older than I am, okay. got mad at my parents one year. I was four. So he took me to, he took me to show me where all the presents that mom and dad had gotten us were hidden. Okay. So I was four when I learned that Santa mm -hmm. was not Santa. But, you know, in retrospect, it was it was horrible at that moment. But in retrospect, being that I didn't grow up in an overly wealthy family, it was easier for me those years when times were tight. Mm -hmm. Because you knew it wasn't – you weren't expecting all this stuff from, you know, this fake – Big guy. Mm -hmm. This you, mysterious stranger who shows up once a year. Breaks into your house. Yep. And leaves you things. Mm hmm But, uh, you know, you, you, it was easier for me to go, okay, so, you know, dad's on strike this year or whatever. You know, it was easier to go, okay, be happy for what you got versus, right. you know, having these pie-in-the-sky ideals that are never going to happen. So, I don't know. I, you know, when we were... When we had kids, I was said to my wife, I said, why, why do the Santa thing? You know, why, why lie to our kids? And, you know, and she's like, no, we're doing it. And she never really said why, but you know, in retrospect, I'm glad we did. Our girls were probably in that eight years old when they figured it out and stuff. Um, she had a really cute story about Emma. She was talking to Nikki one day and I was listening in and they were talking and she goes, so 
is Santa real? And he's like, <laughs> do you really want to know? You know, kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, I think I do. And so Nikki's like, no, Santa's not real. You know, it's, it's mom and dad. We, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, don't tell your sister. You know, she still believes, blah, blah. And she's like, no, that's fine. You know, she never did. She never did spill to Molly that mm-hmm. Santa wasn't real. And uh, she went to her room, you know, to kind of ponder on the whole thing. Because, you know, that's that's a big chunk of your childhood. Oh, yeah. And like a half hour later, Nikki and I are sitting in the living room. And she comes out and she goes, so what about the Easter bunny? <laughs> and we're like, and I kind of looked at her and she goes, oh. And the tooth fairy? <laughs> you know, she put them all together in a little. That whole Rise of the Guardians motif there. Yeah, yeah. So Just going was... through down the list. Yeah, so she was she was uh, she was a little devastated, but we didn't force it on her. She came to us and said, you know, some of my friends are saying this, and some of my friends are saying this, and you know, and I'm like, well, so you got any last words of advice? Any last words on this topic? A little, a little bit. Okay. I mean, it, we talked a little bit about literature, and we talked about TV shows and stuff, and of course, you can't talk about Santa Claus without thinking about Miracle on 34th Street, and that um, kind of connected to it, that iconic, I believe it's New York Times editorial with the, the tagline, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Okay. So kind of a, along those lines, um, I think last year was the first year we went back to it, but um, my wife and I have, have for a number of years volunteered with Operation Bootstrap, okay. delivering uh, presents and food and stuff. And last year we brought my older daughter. And so I, I think probably any day now she's going to make that connection that maybe, excuse me, Santa's not exactly what she's believed it to be because she's actually seen us delivering presents mm-hmm. to families so now knowing her, she might jump all the way to the conclusion that I'm Santa. <laughs> and that's um, not a false statement. Right. Um, or she might uh, think, oh, maybe Santa's a franchise. That's why we see so many of them around. But we really wanted to, and I mean, you know me, I'm not overly religious. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy for a year. All of that, but, and we're not raising the girls overly religious. I talk to them a lot about um, all the different religions, and we have friends who are a variety of different faiths, and we talk to them about that. But we really think that it's important for them to understand the caring for others part of the holiday. And it, I won't go so far as the whole keep Christ in Christmas element but i do think that certain amount of selflessness and giving to the community and helping others is an important part of this holiday and i think that we really need to make sure that that doesn't succumb to the commercialism yeah i would agree i mean it's it's one thing if you want to bring religion into it you know both of my girls have gone through religious education neither of them are overly hip on the idea of religion, which is, you know, that's their choice to make. 
But I think I did my part as my as a father saying this is this is what I want you to know. So they know it now. It's just a matter of what they do with it. Right. But both of my girls, and, and you know my girls pretty well, both of them are very selfless when it comes to other people. Not each other, right. but other people. <laughs> well, I mean, they are sisters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they do that kind of stuff. They, um, they volunteer and do things such as that. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys that I help where I can. I don't have a lot of time, so mm-hmm. I can't go out. I mean, I suppose I could. I could go out ring bells and stuff like that. But that kind of stuff doesn't doesn't appeal to me. I would much rather go spend an afternoon building little pouches of food that, you know, through the United Way or something like that. But it's it's always a feeling that when you do something like that, it's always the feeling that comes with it. And that's right. that was kind of the thing that to get the girls, you know, active and, and believing and doing that kind of stuff is I'm like, do it. You know, it may not be the best, funnest thing in the world to do, but then it's the feeling afterwards. It's once you realize you've done something that's going to, you know, benefit somebody else. It's at that point that you are doing something to make yourself a better person. You know, and you get that feeling of of accomplishment, of nothing else, from doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that seems to work, you know. Is religion for everybody? No. It, it just isn't. Right. In fact, I, you know, I say, you know, I, I, I think of myself as a Catholic. Do I go to church every Sunday? No. Do I, you know, do I make sure I make it to church on every, you know, required holy day of obligation? No. I probably couldn't even tell you this. I know there's seven (laughs) of them. Uh, What they all are, I probably couldn't tell you. You know, but it's not, to me, religion isn't about hitting the date. You know, it's not about showing my face. It's about what I do every day within my own life. Right. So, but... We're kind of getting away from Santa Claus here. (laughs) (laughs) But all of that is part of that mystique of Santa Claus. It's all a part of what Santa Claus is meant to be. Not necessarily what he's become, but what he's meant to be. So I think with that, we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, If you want to drop us a line and let us know what you think of this episode or any other episode, you can do that. There's a few different ways. But before I go into that, remember, hang on after all this because we're going to do a reading of A Visit from St. Nicholas. So, um, But in order to reach us, you can send us an email at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com. Or if you're more into the social media thing, you can find us on Facebook at POI Network or at Want to Hear Something Interesting. Uh, any way you want to reach out to us, we'll get back to you. And uh, we really hope you enjoy this episode. Have a very Merry Christmas. And uh, let's get into the poem. All right. A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore. T'was the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief, and I in my cap, had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of a new-fallen snow gave luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer? 
with a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all, as leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, where they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him, in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod up, the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and, and to all a good night. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio. <laughs>